It's Monday, August 24th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hell. Joining me in studio for Monthly Fool Deep Value, Ron Gross. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. We are kicking off Strategy Week. And again, as a reminder, this is Strategy Week, which is. <laughs> what does that mean? If you're a longtime listener, you know what it means when I say it's Strategy Week. Uh, but if you're a relatively new listener, what it means is. I'm actually on vacation this week. So, so you're actually not here right now. <laughs> so we're pre-taping a week's worth because the alternative is we take two weeks off no. and we just go away. And and we did that the first year we did market foolery. And oh, the angry email we got. So we thought, you know what? We're not going to do that again. Because we, we care. We care. Right. We care. So we're gonna we're gonna dig a little deep on different investing strategies. And because Ron Gross is in the room. We're going to talk. That's a lot of pressure. We're going to talk. It is a lot of pressure. We're going to talk a lot about value investing because that's who you are. Let's that's, do it. that's what you do at your core. What does it mean for you to be a value investor? Because I think there are a lot of people who, once they start to invest in stocks, once they start to get their feet wet, I think there are a lot of people who identify, self identify as value investors. Right. But I get the sense that it means different things to different people. I think that's fair. I think, at its most basic, I think probably most value investors can agree that we seek to buy stocks for less than we think they're worth. And the terms for what we think they're worth is typically intrinsic value. Sometimes you'll hear the word fair value um, thrown around. And that discount, that undervaluation, we call a margin of safety. And it basically basically gives us um, a safety net. It insulates us in case our analysis is flawed in some way. So, rather than pay up for a stock, or pay a fair value, or more than fair value, God forbid, um, we pay less. So, not only do we make money, but we build in a little bit of a safety net in case we're, we're incorrect. Does that automatically mean that, on the flip side, if you're buying a, a stock at lower than you think it's worth, do you automatically, or do, or let's forget you for a second? Do value investors automatically put a cap on something, saying, "Well, listen, I'm buying it at lower. You know, I think it's worth 15. It's trading at 10. I'm going to buy it at 10, and then once it hits the price that I think it's worth as a value investor, am I hitting the sell button?" That is a tip, typically the the methodology. And whether it's exactly when it hits the valuation, or you let it run till it's actually overvalued, different people have different thoughts on that. Um, but in general, since since no investor would willingly pay more than a stock is worth, there's a there's an element of value investing in almost almost everyone's kind of thought process, even if they don't realize it, because the idea is to make money, and if if you buy something that is more expensive than it should be, you're not going to make money. Um, but I think the real differentiation comes from, since if everybody, in a sense, is trying to make make a buck and buy a value, the differentiation is what are you willing to pay for the future, for the growth of the future that is, by definition, unknown. Growth investors are typically willing to pay a premium now for growth that they think will occur in the future. Value investors tend to be more conservative and say, not so much. I'm not going to pay up now for what is, by definition, unknown. I'm going to be more conservative and buy things that don't require lofty growth rates into the future. Now, does that mean we're going to miss a lot of the great growth stories of our century? Yes. It really does. Yes. 
But you have, if if you're going to practice true value investing, you kind of have to come to terms with that. Do you think it's fine to do a little bit of both? Do you think it's fine for an investor to look at their portfolio and say, "I'm going to take this portion of it, and that's going to be my value part of my portfolio, and I'm going to focus my value investing there, but I'm going to have part that is focused on growth." I absolutely think that's fine. In fact, I do it myself, and I, you know, as we as we always say, I'm truly a value investor. I really believe in it very strongly. But I own Tesla, and I own Facebook, and I own what could be some of the great growth stories of our time. Um, it, it, those those aren't the bulk of my portfolio, but I do want and appreciate exposure to them. We are in year six of a bull market run. Is it harder to be a value investor right now? Is it yeah. <laughs> just the same as it always is? <laughs> well, it depends, I guess, on the definition of harder. It's harder to find good values right now. So, patience is required, and you have to manage your frustration level. Um, I think value investors. How are you doing with that? <laughs> some days are easier than others. I think value investors actually get in trouble, and they do themselves a disservice when they start to lighten up on their criteria that's hopefully time tested and you believe in. You start to lighten up on your criteria in order to put capital to work. That's when mistakes get made. Rather, I would like to see people exercise patience, protect their capital, sit on cash if you can't find anything that you truly believe in, because eventually the values will come in and come to you. So every once in a while, when we talk about, you know, James Early has made this point before. When you're buying shares of a company, write down on a piece of paper. The reasons you're buying it, so that at some point in the future, when you're thinking maybe it's time to sell or or, or asking potentially tough questions about that business, you can go back and look at the original reasons you bought it. Is that the same thing with value investing, except that the reasons are maybe more numbers focused? Yeah, it's both focused. It's thesis focused, and that that leads into valuation. And by the way, everything leads into valuation: the quality of a business, the competitive advantage, the quality and strength of management. You you must understand the business and the industry before you can even start to plug in numbers into anything. So the Motley Fool is proud of being business focused, and just because you're a valuation or a value focused investor doesn't doesn't change any of that. Um, the one thing I'll say about um, writing down your thesis. Is folks often say if the thesis ends up being broken, that's one of the reasons I would sell. To me, that that is not what I do. Just because a thesis is broken doesn't mean there isn't a new thesis. It's actually a new investment almost on any given day, depending on what's happening in the world. And as an analyst, I reevaluate based on what information is here in front of me today. And whether that meets the old thesis or not doesn't really matter to me. It's whether is it a good value today or not. You mentioned management. Is management something you look at first or last? Because my assumption is you're looking at the value of a business, you're breaking down the balance sheet, and then maybe not dead last, but towards the end of the process, that's when you start to look at management because it's it's a little it's a little more qualitative than quantitative. I think you're right. Management is not first. Um, and I, you know, Dave and Tom Gardner are, are very big proponents of saying something that doesn't show up in a financial statement is the quality of management um, and where that manager or CEO can take a business. And I actually I agree with that. But you can see the quality of management in some of the metrics on the capital allocation, on the return on equity, return on assets. 
on the market share, on the competitive advantage, all those things are shaped by the leaders of the company, and that does show up in the current financial statements. It, however, doesn't speak to what can happen three to five years down the road. Let's talk about a couple of metrics. If I'm looking to really dig in and exercise my value investing muscles, what are a couple <laughs> of metrics I should look at in any given business? Sure. The, the two broad categories, I would say, are cash flow-based metrics and balance sheet-based metrics. For cash flow, if you're looking for a multiple, a very common one would be enterprise value to EBITDA. Whoa, um, whoa. Or EBITDA <laughs> simply stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's a simplified measure of cash flow. Um, and, and that's that, basically just how much how much cash is coming through the door. Right. It's it's like a PE ratio, but it uses cash flow instead of earnings. Um, a discounted cash flow would be kind of the mother of all cash flow metrics or cash flow tools. Much more complicated. Lots of inputs can be precise just based on the nature of all those inputs. Um, but that but that's certainly a big one that lots of value investors look at. Investors really of all stripes. You'll find venture capitalists using discounted cash flow to decide. If they want to make an investment or not, then on the other side, as I said, we have um, the balance sheet, which is an asset-based um, look at a company, a net worth-based look at a company. We all have net worths; it's what you own minus what you owe. Companies have exactly the same thing, so we can look at that. Um, the The common accounting term for that is book value, or specifically tangible book value, which looks only at the hard assets of a company, and and that's you know one more tool we use. So it's not about the cash coming through the door; it's about how much real estate do you own, how much how much do you own in terms of hard assets, equipment, etc. Minus how much debt you owe. Um, whether oh right, <laughs> that pesky debt. Am I wasting my time? As a value investor, looking at big technology stocks because yeah. I, I it, and this is just my observation, but it seems like you're better off as a value investor looking at maybe cyclical businesses, and I'm ta- I'm talking large businesses yeah. now. You're better off looking at an Exxon Mobil or a Chevron, just to pick one broad category, than. Cisco Systems, you know, or any big tech company. I think in general you're right, but wasting your time might be a bit strong for me. Uh, So not not too long ago, both Microsoft and Apple were considered value investments. After the stocks had come down, the businesses had floundered just a bit, um, and all of a sudden these large tech companies were thought of in value uh, as value investments. Not deep value investments, but value nonetheless. Um, I think one mistake. Value investors in particular make is that they underestimate how long really great companies can grow for. And that's not just tech, that could be a company like Starbucks. And if you fail to understand how long a company like that can grow for, your valuation estimate is going to just be flawed. Now, I think value investors need to understand and adjust for that or realize that. They're going to make mistakes and be able to live with it. And each, I think, individual person um, is different. But in general, I, I think you're right what you said about the cyclical businesses versus the, the high growth tech companies. Um, value investors tend to hit singles and doubles. Um, we're not necessarily looking for the home runs or the grand slam home runs, and, and we're okay with that. Yeah, I mean, just sticking with the baseball analogy, plenty of people in the Hall of Fame who, you know, were not big home run hitters, they were just, you know, hitting for average. 
Right. And, and you know, listen, there's no denying that a nice eight to 10 bagger yeah. makes up for a lot of mistakes. And the, the whole venture capital based model is built on that. David Gardner's amazing track record over at Rule Breakers is largely based on that. And I applaud it. And I think, as we said earlier, there's a room for that in everyone's portfolio. But since you're asking me about yeah. value investing, you know, th- that's, that's, that's my thought. Well, you just reminded me of something, and it and it's it's one of those things that I I don't do enough as an investor when I'm when I'm looking at a given industry or a given company, but it is something that I I, I should probably do more of. In part because I find it interesting, and it is the whole idea of market opportunity, because you know you mentioned Starbucks, and I think when he when he was here a week or two ago, Alex Scherer was talking about, and I can't remember if Alex said this. I think he said this on the podcast, or maybe it was before we started taping, but he was talking about one analyst. Um, he was he, he was reading some research on Chipotle, mm-hmm. and basically, this um, analyst uh, was looking at the market opportunity not in terms of just sort of the average market across America, but really looking at the most concentrated areas and saying, well, if you look at Chipotle's concentration in Washington D.C. and in Denver. And extrapolate that out to twenty other large cities. I mean, I don't know that he said right. twenty, but you look at other sure. major cities. Then actually, their market opportunity is about a thousand restaurants higher than anyone else is talking about. And I think that I don't know. I I find that interesting, um, in part because when you look at analysts out there covering whatever the whatever the business is, whatever company you own shares of, or you're thinking about, there are going to be analysts out there. Who will have a pretty wide range in some cases, and that I don't know. That's to me, that's sort of fun to sort of look at and try and suss out. Okay, what do I really think as right. an investor about what this market opportunity is, whether it's for the business at large or something as focused as a device like the Apple Watch? Right, and I think that's one of the knock on value investors that they don't think um, big enough, that they're they're too conservative, that they don't really think about. The whole market opportunity. Uh, we we did a model years and years ago on Chipotle, and and we didn't envision same store sales increasing at the rate they are increasing, and the company being able to raise prices as they've had, and the continued rollout, and the optionality of of Shop House and Pizzeria Locale. Um, you know, and, and I would say perhaps that's a common thing that in value investors don't do, and whether it's because we're conservative or because we just make mistakes, maybe a little bit of both. Um, but really, um, when you think of some of the best companies of our time that can continue to invest capital, reinvest capital at very high rates of return, those are the kind of companies that are really special. And whether you're a value investor or a growth-focused investor, they're they're really the kind of companies you want to own. I wouldn't beat myself up too much on that one because I don't remember anybody <laughs> out there really predicting some of the comps that they put up not every quarter but you know i think it was a year ago they put up a, a, a same store sale increase of like 15% yeah, so it like really that. it was very very impressive um last thing and and then i'll let you go how is deep value different from value investing deep value looks for stocks that are really cheap and really cheap often means something's going wrong right now and the trick there, my job is to decide if there's a permanent impairment in the business or is there just something temporary going on that has caused investors to shun the stock just for the moment and therefore created an opportunity to buy a stock you know, at a significant discount to what the intrinsic value is, in my opinion, once things normalize, whether it's a cyclical stock or management corrects the problem um, that, is, that is occurring. 
Um, those are the kind of companies we're looking for at Deep Value. But they have to have strong balance sheets. Um, they happen to have they have they have to have solid businesses. We're not looking for companies that you know are just awful companies. We're looking for solid companies that for some reason are, are temporarily cheap. Does the turnaround? I don't want to say always, but does the turnaround often include a change in management? Um, it, it um, often is. It, it often does, yes, but certainly not. Not necessarily more than fifty percent of the time. You know, one out of two would still be pretty often. Um, sometimes you'll get an act invest, activist investor comes in that will kind of shake up the board, not necessarily the CEO um, or the C-suite um, level executives. Um, but sometimes the activists will try to, to do that too. And and deep value activists are often looking for deep value investments um, because th- these are where they can they can make a tweak, they can make a change um, where where current management perhaps wasn't willing to, and that can can make the temporary problem go away. Um, but it's often it can be something you need to divest a business, you need to cut costs, you need to maybe um, acquire a business, you maybe need to buy back stock, uh, uh, recapitalize the business, something um, that is currently just not right, but should a year, maybe two years from now, look much better. Thanks for being here, man. My pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>